0: This episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast is presented by Sling TV. Coming up this week, you've got the Premier League as well as the CONCACAF Champions League and League Earn, much, much more also, all available through Sling TV. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk Podcast. My name is Christopher Harris and I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnire. We're back and uh, we are doing two episodes a week. Uh, this is the uh, early week edition. Kartik, a lot, lot's going on. Of course, there's uh, Wednesday, I mean, biggest match of the season, Arsenal against Manchester City on Peacock. Uh, this one could have huge ramifications on the title, depending on which way it goes. Uh, but but uh, rather than concentrate on that, which, which I, I'm sure everyone's going to, I mean, I'm looking forward to it, definitely. I, we had a press release on, um, I think it was on Monday, kind of a, a late press release from CBS Sports. Now, this might be by complete coincidence, or so this might be something that you know, they heard our... Uh, input from the podcast th- i think a couple weeks ago where we talked about lower league soccer and we're like okay yeah footy morning is great great coverage by cbs sports uh, Golasso network about european soccer uh, even mls etc but our criticism was um really no discussion of lower league soccer uh probably no no discussion at all during that first week well, things have changed pretty quickly. So whether they're listening to us or or, or just uh, kind of uh, within themselves kind of thinking about this, uh, they made an announcement on Monday uh, about uh, three games from the U.S. Open Cup. They're going, going to be shown uh, live streaming on the Golasso Network. Uh, and these are U.S. Open Cup games involving MLS teams versus uh, lower league soccer teams. So this is I mean, really fantastic news, available for free. What's your perspective on this, Karthik? I mean, you have for a long time been uh, very involved in lower league soccer, I mean, throughout your entire life and and career. Um, What's your your analysis about this deal that CBS Sports made, uh, albeit at the last minute?
1: So, actually, going back to the first thing you said about Arsenal versus Manchester City, I'm so in a different world than people who just watch the Premier League that somebody yesterday, uh, a colleague of mine, said at the end of our conversation, which was about uh, a political matter, uh, are you going to watch the game on Wednesday, and what about the game on Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. And I assumed he was talking about the Miami FC inter-Miami match, because he's in South Florida, and spoke for like a minute, yeah, you know, the CBS deal, and it's great, and, and then. And he's like no 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 no. I'm talking about Arsenal Man City and I was like oh that games Wednesday I didn't even realize it so um, I'm in a different world than than some other people than most other people but yes this is a a big big deal it's something that um, uh, I I don't want to reveal too much because I had some inside knowledge of what was going on but it was something that was worked on um, by the clubs involved right and and there are three matches that are being shown including uh, uh, Tormenta tonight. Uh, We're recording this on Tuesday. Tormenta against Charlotte FC. Tormenta, uh, which is from Statesboro, Georgia, is one of the model clubs in lower division soccer in terms of the way they're structured. Uh, uh, At the youth level, they have a women's team. They have a professional team, professional men's team that's playing in this match. Miami FC and Inter-Miami, which I teased earlier, and that match will also be available on the uh, cbsmiami.com website uh, nationally. There's no geo block on it, so you can Watch uh, that that broadcast via the Golasso channel, uh, which is obviously free and national, uh, or CBS Miami, and then uh, Portland and Orange County SC. Orange County SC uh, is a is a USL club in Orange County, California. They won the title two years ago, and they have a very good relationship with the local lo- uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, CBS station. So uh, big big deal, and it's something that allows the U.S. Open Cup to kind of emerge from uh, the shadow those, right? The only uh, previous time uh, I remember an, a late announcement like this is when Eric Winaldo's Cal FC, remember that, uh, was taking on Portland in Portland and Fox had a vested interest at the time when Rinaldo was a fo- uh, Fox personality and also Nick Webster, our, our former host of this podcast uh, or forerunner of this podcast uh, was uh, on the coaching staff of Cal FC and they picked up that game late and it was really like this really exciting development. Um, there was so much excitement yesterday, Chris, when this announcement came out. I mean, there were people DMing me and texting me. This is the greatest thing ever. Um, Daniel Feuerstein, who, of course, writes for World Soccer Talk and uh, has his own show, uh, it, like in, 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 in haste, wrote this celebratory uh, uh, article that I posted on Beyond the 90. Um, it feels like this is a big, big moment. But is it a one-off? That's the big question. But right now, it's huge for the U.S. Open Cup. It's huge for the three USL teams involved who are all playing MLS teams and will be now on national television.
0: So what do you think the reaction was when this idea was floated uh, and, and then Turner Sports who have the the rights to uh, – U.S. Soccer and Turner Sports have the rights to uh, the U.S. Open Cup, uh, are showing some of the games on Bleacher Report uh, and or YouTube, and uh, U.S. Soccer has gotten a lot of criti- criticism for not making every every single game available. What do you think the reaction was, was within Turner Sports and within U.S. Soccer when uh, – probably, right, Uh, CBS made a call and said, hey, what do you think about us uh, showing some of these games that otherwise, for some people, would not be available?
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, there's been a lot of unhappiness this year uh, and I, I let me make this clear uh, there's been a lot of unhappiness this year with Turner Sports among fans it is not Turner's fault, it's actually the U.S. Soccer Federation that's cut back um, their production costs and their willingness to pay for production for every match uh, and then put it on uh, television or streaming so in the uh, last uh, tournament every match was produced by U.S. Soccer and put on ESPN Plus this year U.S. Soccer is only producing eight matches per round in the early rounds, which means those eight matches do end up on Turner or Bleacher Report, uh, which is Turner's uh, 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 digital presence. So what has happened is the other games have been left to a, quote, team cast. So the teams can either show the game and pay for production um, and deal with that on their own end, or... um, the matches aren't streamed. So last round, for example, uh, we had a match in Florida, Tampa Bay Rowdies versus Nona FC, two teams from the state of Florida that was not streamed. And uh, in order to do my match report, I was uh, actually texting with people at the game. That's how bad it was. That was like, uh, that's like circa 2005, right? Um, So... CBS um uh, had three teams in this case that that were willing to um pay for production and and, and work on their own the the uh uh Charlotte Miami FC who, who as I've I mentioned is affiliated with the local CBS station in in Miami Fort Lauderdale anyway and uh and Portland and uh I think this is kind of a bailout for U.S. soccer. I think that this is something where people have been very angry and they've been blaming Turner, and I think it's because Turner – Um, comes with very low credibility with some fans because of what happened with uh, Champions League a couple years ago. But in reality, this is a U.S. soccer error, and this is now a bailout. They've got three more games uh, not only being broadcast, but now being broadcast on national television, which uh, makes the Open Cup, uh, which kind of does the marketing job that U.S. soccer is not doing effectively, um, much more effective thanks to CBS.
0: Now, the reality, Kartik, uh to bring you down to earth, right, for, uh, for Wednesday, for example, arguably out of everyone that's watching soccer on Wednesday in the United States, probably, what, 85% to 90% of the people are going to be watching uh, Arsenal against Manchester City. And then the remaining 10%, roughly, uh, probably then sp- spread between US Open Cup, uh, Champions League, and... Uh, and then other Premier League matches and, and and other matches. So everyone's going to be watching that Arsenal Man City game. But this does give an opportunity for U.S. Open Cup and, and U.S. soccer and lower league soccer. Uh, I mean, it's D- David and Goliath. I mean, there are some big matchups here. Uh, as we've seen last year too, it's very possible that a lower league team that you know, plays good football, well organized, uh, good uh, supporters fan base. Can go all the way, all the way to the final and uh, give a MLS team a run for its money. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely exciting. People aren't going to be watching Derby Day Italia on at the same time
1: as Arsenal Man City.
0: Well, that's the thing though too, right? That, probably not. I mean, that and that's the thing though too, because I mean, I can guarantee you, right, that that almost all the attention is going to be on one game, and 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 that's how it is almost every weekend, right? For when there's a big match on, um, you mean. Mainstream America is watching. You look at the actual TV viewership numbers. So not to say that um, the uh, uh, Italia is not going to be a a bigger or more important or better game. But the reality is the majority of people are going to be watching Arsenal against Man City. and, And there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Uh, no, no, there's not, actually. And, and obviously, that's a massive game in the Premier League. Uh, there are other big games in the Premier League. You know, I'm, I'm really kind of curious. I think, I'm not sure if it's tomorrow or Wednesday. Uh, again, I mean, it's not that I didn't know Manchester City was playing Arsenal. I just didn't know if it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and when the guy started talking about Wednesday's game, I assumed he meant the, the local U.S. Open Cup match. Um, but uh, Brentford-Chelsea, I think, is really interesting because that's a derby where if Brentford wins, they will probably finish above Chelsea in the league table, which I think is just something that is that is that that is inconceivable if you think about uh, the context of West London. So that's actually probably the Premier League match I'm most uh, interested in, as crazy as it sounds, because it's just, uh, it, it really is inconceivable. And it's one of those things where I still don't believe it's true. So I just assume Chelsea will win this match, and then we'll be talking 10 years from now. Or oh, remember that period in the season when Brentford were ahead of Chelsea in the table? But uh, the final table won't reflect that, but maybe it will. Maybe Brentford will win.
0: And then going back to the Golasso Network for a, for a minute, too, because uh, hats off to them, because we, we, we did criticize them for not really paying attention to lower league soccer. Uh, they're doing that. And if you look at all the different uh, types of soccer that they cover, so obviously European soccer, Serie A, um, and the women's soccer, NWSL, you have um, I mean, this game for U.S. Open Cup or these games from U.S. Open Cup. And they look at morning footy, and <clears throat> morning footy definitely is um, one of my criticisms. Before the show started, was that it, it seemed to be very MLS centric as far as um, the whole crew, and and with some of the things that had been said about how they want to uh, give uh, Americans a perspective based on uh, Americans playing abroad, and kind of a kind of a very American centric approach. And actually, in reality, it's been very uh eclectic it's been very varied it's been it's kind of been uh, i mean they've covered a lot of different topics um throughout each day and have quite a variety now whether that's enough to keep people's attention and to to k- get them watching on a daily basis or, or however, however however often they watch that is the big challenge um but so far they're, they're doing much better than I, than I thought they would and um but it's almost day to day, like some, some days are great, some days are eh, really nothing much to talk about. Uh, but it is difficult. It's probably one of the diff- most difficult jobs in soccer on television, how to keep everyone happy.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that at some point topics become stale, right? And that's something, particularly in the format they're in, that uh, um, they're going to discover. I mean, I've discovered this with ESPN FC, keeping things fresh every day sometimes is tough. Now, once the transfer window opens, it becomes very simple, although maybe with their American focus, it's, it's a little less uh, uh, transfer centric. I, I I did find their conversation on Monday morning about uh, U.S. soccer's high Hiring uh, a, a little, a little strange because I think that there's um, there's this reflexive, um, I, I don't even know how to put it, this reflexive bias against anything that's British among uh, among some pundits in the U.S. So I, I maybe get overly sensitive when I hear criticisms of the hiring of Crocker, uh, who, by the way, you know, I, I he has a great resume, but I would say that Dan Ashworth, who then did. The same thing at Brighton and now is doing the same thing at Newcastle um, was probably the driving force behind the success of the FA at the U-17 and U-20 levels at the time. And Crocker was there and didn't do a terrible job at Southampton, but I, I don't think he's Dan Ashworth. So it's not like you're getting the, the, the gold-plated product. But still, I, I found some of the discussion on goal, on um, Morning Footy to be like, well, there's this British guy. Why are we bringing in a British guy, right? I don't know if you got that, that, that uh, sense from the conversation but that kind of disappointed me because i think um that's a reflexive reaction in american soccer whenever someone who's european or british is hired
0: yeah i I missed that that particular episode on monday but um it is something i mean if it was a dutch person coming in or if it was a german coach i don't think the the questioning or the or the uh kind of curiosity or kind of criticism would be as heavy but Oftentimes, I think when it is someone that's English, uh, that criticism comes through harder and there's a lot of kind of like, well, why are we bringing this guy in instead of this other guy who's American, who knows, who knows us, who, who knows the team?
1: I was going to say it's used against Americans, too, because it's, there's this uh, saying that they have, we need someone who, quote, understands the American player, unquote. And that I've noticed, I used to think that was, OK, that's a bias against Europeans they don't want uh, or South Americans. They don't want anyone from outside. Then I realized it was also used against American coaches that may test the norms of American players. Like 10 years ago, that guy was Caleb Porter, right? Caleb Porter was a guy that was very different coming out of Akron when he managed Akron than most American coaches. Coaches, and he, he would kind of push the boundaries of what American players were traditionally comfortable with. Same thing with Eric Rinaldo, who we mentioned earlier uh, at Cal FC, etc. So now I've realized some of that is, is just a crux to kind of protect the habits of American players and the kind of status quo uh, mediocrity uh, of, of the program and, and of, uh, of uh, American men's soccer.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, this this person uh, Crocker, is going to have a lot of influence within uh, U.S. soccer as a sporting the new sporting director uh, is going to be hiring the the general manager uh, who is going to be hiring the coach, um, and and probably you mean the initial um, you mean thoughts in, in terms of what you mentioned in terms of what Morning Footy were kind of hint, hinting at is that okay if it's an English uh, sporting director. Maybe he'll hire an English general manager, and then maybe they'll hire an English uh, manager or someone with English ties. If it, I mean Jesse Marsh would be an example of somebody that has a lot of English ties in terms of having worked there, and uh, you mean knows Crocker, etc. Do, do you think this puts Jesse Marsh in that pull position, Carter, given the relationship and given those connections, perhaps?
1: I don't know if he wants the job. Look, he's got a a coaching career in Europe. Uh, Look, this is again something that I have to point out and Twitter is very unrepresentative and YouTube is very unrepresentative of reality. Okay, the U.S. men's national team job is not a plum job. It's not uh, on a level. I mean, there were people who were saying, lots of people saying like, well, if we had gotten to Pep Guardiola, he wouldn't have re-signed with Manchester City and he would have taken the U.S. job. No, you're not in that frame. Nor is any other international job, right? Gareth Southgate, I love the guy. I think he's a renaissance man, I really like him personally. But he's not an elite coach and he's managing England. Didier Deschamps is not an elite coach and he's managed France now for a decade, right? International jobs are are, a rung below top club jobs. My understanding of Jesse Marsh, and I do know people connected with him, um, is that he really wants to test himself uh, at the European level. Now, I don't know after the breakdown in talks with Southampton and with Leicester if maybe his mindset's changed in the last two months, but even after he got um, sacked at Leeds, he still wanted to find that next big European job that he could manage uh, and was not really focused on the national team. Now, maybe that changes also with a guy like Crocker because maybe Marsh is like, okay, I'll be comfortable if I'm reporting to Crocker who understands kind of the global game better in my mind than if I'm reporting to some former U.S. men's national team player who doesn't have the same experience I do now going and managing in Austria and managing in Germany and managing in England so um, maybe he's back in the frame but my, my guess is no I think I don't think he wants the job and by the way, he would be my first choice for the job if he wanted the job. And he was my first choice uh, four years ago. And I have a paper trail of tweets about that. So um, I, I've been on the Jesse Marsh bandwagon for the MNT for a while. But I think maybe his station in coaching is, is well above where the US men's national team is now uh, after going to Europe and, and doing a fairly good job at a couple of clubs.
0: The other thing about Crocker, though, too, is that uh, by bringing someone from the outside uh, and bringing them into US soccer, uh, sometimes people get upset because I mean there's often it's a very incestuous relationship where people within the US soccer like to hire people from within the system, people that they know. Oftentimes it's friends, oftentimes it's players that they used to work with. Uh so someone like say a Carlos Bocanegra, who I think passed the passed on the opportunity, um, you mean or a, a Gucci I mean definitely uh, two uh i mean both uh, Carlos and Achi players with uh good professional careers and uh have also had uh post uh, playing careers too uh, at different levels would be probably people that that would be considered and, and I think both of them were in the running or, or passed on it or they, they didn't make it anyway but um oftentimes too I think that's sometimes the thinking is like why are we hiring someone outside of this bubble? Um, and it, it is, it's it's uneasy for some people because it's something they don't know. Um, but Crocker, this could be a really great signing for U.S. soccer. This could be somebody that uh, has the experience that knows how to run an organization, make the right decisions, uh, and having come from Southampton um, and, and, and the FA could be on the right path, Karthik.
1: Yeah, I'd actually argue Bocanegra, among Americans, is kind of out of that bubble, like, uh, like I mentioned Caleb Porter 10 years ago. Um, he's a guy that, uh, first of all, has a different agent, and I, I know uh, most people don't know the inside baseball of this, but uh, agents make a big difference, and Bocanegra has a different agent than most of the people in U.S. soccer. Secondly, at Atlanta, he, uh, he built a team uh, with Darren Eels, who's now at Newcastle, by the way, and is British, uh, that was very kind of eclectic and foreign and did a lot of things different. Differently than the typical American uh, running an MLS club, so I actually think he would be that that difference. Um, my understanding is he said no, uh, he didn't want the job. So um, that's uh, yeah, but I think Crocker could be could be a huge hire if they let him, if he has the autonomy and freedom that we hope he does. Now, we've thought in the past, there have been these false starts where we think US soccer is changing and they brought in someone really impressive and look, they brought someone in from outside and maybe that someone from outside will uh, will shake things up and then there's always internal pressures. Uh, that's what Jurgen Klinsmann faced. That's what Bob Bradley faced. Uh, that's what um, other people have faced. I think that's what very much what Ernie Stewart faced. There is still pressure in the building. There is still pressure from the same powers that be there is still pressure from the same agency uh, of of, uh, of connected people that are in U.S. soccer so um, it on paper appears to be a really good hire and a positive change but we've had this head fake I want to say three or four times in the past from U.S. soccer and it's never quite worked out.
0: What's your take on uh, Jesse Marsh? I mean, if he had stayed in the job at Leeds, do you think Leeds would be in a better position now than what they are under um, uh, Javi uh, Garcia?
1: Um, that's a great question because I think they would have scored more goals. I think they would have created more chances. But I think that the chaotic type of football that Jesse Marsh favours, the Red Bull style, um, very much an uh disciple, I think that... Um, quite frankly, would have been um, difficult uh, in terms of uh, keeping clean sheets. And um, maybe they wouldn't have lost 6-1 uh, or, or, and 5-0, and, and, uh, but they still may have lost games 4-3, 3-2. Three, three, so I, I think what Leeds needed, if they were going to part ways with March, was to bring in a Sean Dyche. And they didn't do that. So uh, I'm I, I trying to remember the timing. Maybe Dyche had already been hired by Everton. But they needed to bring in that type of manager. Otherwise, maybe they were better off sticking with Marsh. So I think they may be in the same position or slightly higher. Um, I understand why Marsh was sacked. Uh, I was very unhappy about it when it happened, just from my own personal emotion and standpoint. But I understand why he was sacked. I also don't understand why then you bring in a manager. Um, This happened, by the way, at Watford. I mean, there were games when Gracia was at Watford where they gave up four or five goals. Um, He did a pretty good job there, but still, he's not a defensive manager. So I don't know why, uh, if they were trying to survive, they didn't bring in a guy that was going to tighten them at the back. Now... The other, the flip side is true though Maybe you can play your way out uh, Gary O'Neill, uh, Bournemouth's not safe yet And they just shipped four goals on Sunday But Bournemouth seem to have played their way Out of the bottom three, right? By scoring a lot of goals and, and being open But be, beating teams 3-2, etc um, So maybe uh, it would have worked with Marsh Maybe they would have gotten the 35 points um, It certainly wouldn't be worse I'll put, I'll put it that way
0: yeah, and then one more thing from uh, this past weekend. Arguably the biggest game on Saturday wasn't not was not the uh, Man City against Sheffield United FA Cup semi-final, but it, it was Wrexham. Um, I mean, if you went on social media, it just completely blew up. Uh, Wrexham did it. Finally, they got promoted to uh, League Two. Uh, they defeated uh, Boreham Wood three-one on the day. Uh, even though Boreham Wood scored in the first fifteen seconds of the match. Uh, and, and, and honestly, Kartik, I, I don't see anything stopping this juggernaut from getting bigger. I mean, they're coming on tour to the U.S. this summer. They're playing Chelsea and the Manchester United Academy and are expected to uh, announce two more friendlies. Um, then season two of Welcome to Wrexham is going to be out in the late summer. And before you know it, uh, League Two, uh, the new season will be in August. Uh, it'll be here before you know it. And I think in, in many ways what Wrexham has done, Yes, they've benefited from uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. Uh, but I think what they've done on the pitch as well as off the pitch, and I mean, which includes in the communities, uh, in terms of the, everything that they've done for Wrexham, I, I think in many ways they've done a, actually a better job of marketing the club than many Premier League teams in the US. So I think there's a lot of learning lessons there in terms of what what they've done. Um, I'm curious though, Carter, because I know you're an expert uh, in the US, probably the top expert on the uh, English Football League, even from the Championship all the way down to, to League Two. How you think Wrexham will fare in League Two this, this upcoming season?
1: Well, first off, I don't think they're going to be able to keep Paul Mullen. Uh, I think he is going to be in the championship next year or maybe uh, a League One team pushing promotion. You have uh, a situation at the top of League One right now where you have two automatic promotion stop uh, spots and three really established clubs that are on top of one another. One of them may not go up. So maybe Paul Mullen ends up there. Maybe he ends up at Sheffield Wednesday next year. So, I think they are going to be pieces picked apart. Phil Parkinson, I assume, will stay. But he's also a a League One championship-level manager, historically. That um, Wrexham has spent a lot of money to get this group of players and this coach up. Now, maybe that they've accomplished promotion, does the team get raided? Obviously, they have the money to keep guys. Um, uh, Let me also suggest, actually, uh, this is a little bit of a uh, a diversion. But um, Ben Foster has a great YouTube channel that I've been watching all, all Season long uh, from from August onwards cycling the cycling goalkeeper right because he's a cycler in addition to being a great former England international uh, a great uh, two decade long keeper in, in English football um, you get some of the best scenes of what happened at Wrexham from watching his YouTube channel and um, the fact that they were able to tempt him out of retirement. He had other offers because like I said, I've been watching his YouTube uh, channel since he launched it. Um, I'm I'm a fan of his actually uh, as a player too. So um, he had other offers that he would talk about during the season and be like, yeah, you know, there was a Premier League team that approached me that needs a, 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 some cover as a keeper or championship team and I I'm, a, I'm retired, I'm enjoying doing this show and then... And then Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney called him. And what was the answer? Yes, I'll go. Now, he has a tie to Wrexham. At one time, uh, he was loaned there early in his career. But um, that kind of tells me, Ben Foster kind of tells me the draw of Wrexham. So maybe they don't lose Paul Mullen. Maybe Phil Parkinson sticks it out for another year in League Two. Um, They have a squad right now that can compete in League Two. I just am not sure they keep the squad together is my point, I guess, in a roundabout way is what I'm trying to say. Um, And I think Mullen would be the first guy I look at. Because I, I think their championship clubs, uh, even at the, toward the bottom of the championship, let's say uh, Huddersfield stays up, let's say QPR stays up, I think they're going to want to take a flyer on Paul Mullen because he's a, a pure English number nine that can do some other things off the ball. I mean, we've seen how dynamic he is. We've seen how influential he is and what a winner he is in reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, though, too. Like, uh, anyone who's watched and play and seen uh, Paul Mullen has seen... I mean, that's just... I mean, Ollie Palmer and other players, too. But Paul Mullen certainly stands out. And I could see him dominating in the championship, even for a team like like Blackburn or uh, or, or Middlesbrough, whoever it may be. And it really comes down to that player. It it comes down to him, because does he want to play at a championship club, kind of a higher level? Um, However... Arguably, right in League Two, he'd get more publicity, he'd get more uh, press coverage, he'd get more attention, he'd get more one-on-one love uh, as as someone from just that Wrexham effect than he would even in the Championship. Um, so it really comes down to him in terms of what he wants in his professional career. Uh, and you I mean, <laughs> I mean the money would be better in the Championship? I mean they'd be offering more money, more acclaim, more opportunities? Yeah, that's going to be a really tough one. Ben, Fo- ben Foster is a great, great example, though, too. Karthik. I mean, what a great hire that was. And, and and that one decision to hire him, bring him in towards the end of the season, could have made the difference in actually uh, keeping them up, especially if they had uh, not won that game against Notts County in that last minute.
1: Yeah, he made the Knotts County game specifically with that penalty save. I was going to ask you. I mean, you you you're the, you're a supporter of the hottest team in in the football league right now in Swansea. They um, have uh, uh, 19 points out of their last 21, if I recall correctly. I just wrote an article about them the other day, so I'm thinking that was the 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 stat I cited. Um, and things are really working well. The one thing Swansea doesn't have is a target kind of dynamic number nine like Paul Mullen uh what if he moved from North Wales to South Wales you guys might be uh in in playoff contention next year for promotion back to the Premier League so I I think that uh, I'm just using Swansea as an example because of you but um I think there were a lot of clubs in the championship who were thinking because we've seen it we've seen Jamie Vardy we've seen others move from non-league to league one or the championship and then end up in the Premier League it's not as unprecedented as one might think which goes back to my kind of frustration about the lack of emphasis of, on lower divisions in the U S because it can happen here too, where it's not just clubs we're talking about, it's players who don't get looks who maybe don't get the chance. Um, but I, Paul Mullen, I think is going to be a hot commodity and that might be priority. Number one for Rexham, lock them down, make sure you keep them for next year.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point, especially in, in this day and age where there's not a lot of number nines, even kind of a classic number nine. Uh, and Paul Mullen reminds me of a little bit of uh, Jamie Vardy for sure. Uh, a little bit of Harry Kane, just even the goal he scored against Boreham Woods. I mean, so he has that uh, unique skill, which, which I, I, I'm confident that in terms of his uh, ability, that he would be able to shine even in the championship. I mean, it's a big step up, but I think the gap between the championship and League Two isn't that great. I mean, it's um, personally, I, I think in terms of League Two, I, th- I think they've got a good chance of going up. Um especially with phil parkinson as, as a manager but partly because you I mean there's three teams that go up right so there's a greater opportunity so they might go up through the playoffs i mean there's more opportunities and it's harder to get out of the national league national league they've done it now they don't have to worry about that that's there's very little fear of going back down there for quite a while so i think they could go i mean if they get up to league one who knows from there i mean they're going to be playing against some big teams um but but yeah you're right kartik that's probably the biggest question out of all of this is are they able to actually hold on to the players that they've got and then and then build the squad make some changes that that's the key
1: Two more really quick points on this. Uh, one, Stockport County, who I do follow and got promoted from the National League last year. They, they held off Wrexham, obviously. Big match uh, in Welcome to Wrexham that everyone saw later. They are one point away from automatic promotion right now. Maybe needs uh, Stevenage has a match in hand, so maybe we need uh, them to, to drop, uh, uh, drop drop that match in hand to have a, have a real shot. But uh, y- if you get promoted from the National League, you're generally fighting for promotion the next year from League Two. You're not... Uh, fighting relegation it's very different than the other divisions of English football that way second point Chris at the beginning of the show you talked about the conversation about lower division soccer has changed since we uh, recorded that podcast a few weeks ago I will say that this is a big part of it because the conversation about Wrexham and Wrexham being in people's faces in the United States has forced a conversation about lower division soccer, promotion and relegation, uh, uh, pro league standards, all of this sort of stuff in the United States. So Wrexham is doing their part inadvertently, although maybe it's, it's, it's blatant because now Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds are talking about promotion and relegation, right? It's this wonderful thing. Um, is doing its part to elevate lower divisions in the United States in terms of recognition and conversation. So uh, the Wrexham story has many implications. And this might – we were uh, – what was it? Six months ago we did a podcast about why are these why are MLS fans so insecure about Wrexham. Maybe we're seeing why now because, as I said, they're elevating the conversation here in the States about uh, lower division teams in the United States, not specifically about England itself. Uh, and that's uh, England or Wales itself. That's really important.
0: Yeah, and that might have been about nine months ago. It's uh, We were talking about that pretty – I think maybe September or so when it was um, – Welcome to Wrexham had, had premiered. And you and I were talking about how come no one's talking about this? How come no one's really. Uh, the fans are talking about it, but how come media's not talking about it? How come, uh, you mean, journalists are not talking about it? How come, uh, you mean, television's not talking about it? Um, but that soon changed. I mean, th- th- this has been just uh, incredible to see. But you're right, Kartik, because that, that is the thing. There's so many questions being asked now is why don't we have something like this? Why you mean why why is all this attention on Wrexham? And and even if of obviously Ryan and Rob help a great deal in terms of the name recognition and having people kind of focus on this team and learn about it. But arguably if you didn't have Rob Rob and Ryan and if there's still a Welcome to Wrexham documentary that didn't include those two, it may not have the same effect in terms of reach but it is a heartwarming tale. It is very focused on the community, and it tells the story—a true story—of what's happening to that club and what their hopes and aspirations are. And we're seeing this in in, in real time, in in real life, in terms of you mean know, match by match. So to watch season two is going to be really interesting because I think season one, most people didn't really know what was going to happen, except for you mean know, soccer diehards like ourselves and and, and many of the listeners. But outside of that, most people probably didn 't know what was going to happen in season one, other than that they didn 't get promoted at the end. Season two, I think everyone knows what happened, so it 's going to be really interesting to watch season two because is it going to feel like kind of just a um, like a highlights reel like for the whole season like oh, this is what happened and they met prince char uh, King Charles and th- I mean they won this game uh, in the last minute after that penalty save is it, Is it going to feel like a highlight reel? Or are there going to be topics that they dive into that kind of expand the Wrexham story or get us thinking about other things or like showing us behind the scenes footage that we we had no idea what was happening? Um, And then that feeds into next season, right, in League Two. So um, this whole concept, whether by accident or design, is tremendous and this has done so much more than the all or nothing series right i mean there's been some good ones and some some really bad ones <laughs> yeah, yeah, no no, no one's talking about all or nothing yeah, <laughs> hey, i can't even that? believe
1: we're making the comparison honestly right i mean that that stuff was garbage by comparison
0: yeah but, it, but there's been many other documentaries i mean sunland till i die right sunland are coming uh, to the united states this summer and Sundland till i die was many many years ago now but uh it didn't have quite the same impact. I mean, it had the reverse story. It had, even I mean, showing a club going down the divisions and, and the turmoil and what it meant to fans to, to kind of suffer from relegation, experience relegation. We're now seeing the opposite of Sunderland till I die. Um, so, yeah, hats off to Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney. I think in many ways for actually making the right decision to... to because they, they could have gone to uh, what, seven or eight clubs they, they looked at and uh, 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 basically analyzed to figure out okay, which club are we going to buy, and I think they made the right decision for many, many different reasons, and the Ben Foster thing, where yes, he played for them on loan as a young you know, I don't know 19 year old goalkeeper kind of just starting out and then to see his career come back to Wrexham, they could do a whole episode yeah yeah yeah, so, on, on, so on actually. Uh, On um, the
1: the cycling goalkeeper, uh, if you don't know about the YouTube channel, check it out. I highly recommend it. Again, I'm a Ben Foster fan, so I subscribed at the beginning of the year when he, quote, retired from Watford. Um, But um, uh, he goes into detail because during the course of the season, he said, like, I had this offer. He didn't mention the club, but from a Premier League club, from a championship club, I'm I'm happy doing this. I'm happy spending time with you all. And then the Wrexham offer came in, and he explained why he took it. Which was, you know, again, the ambition of the club. Yes, the tie that he had been there on loan, that, that factored in. But also, he said, I would be lying if I didn't say, look, I've got, I'm now kind of in, in the media landscape, and these two guys are, are, are pop celebrities, and they have the ability to kind of elevate what I'm doing also. So I think that's really important to, uh, if, if you want to, uh, to see the impact of Reynolds and McElhaney even uh, on, on the thoughts of players and of famous players, because Ben Foster is a famous player, usually. <laughs> by non-league standards right um so it's it's the whole package right and and uh it's a juggernaut really and it's rolling down the hill and it it feels like it's unstoppable
0: well just wait till the summer right because like so rexham's playing chelsea uh in chapel hill and that stadium has a capacity of fifty thousand. um and then they're playing manchester united's uh, academy at snapdragon in san diego and that uh, capacity is 35,000. And then they're supposed to play a, a couple of friendlies against Major League Soccer teams. I wouldn't be surprised if they play Philadelphia Union uh, in Philly, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia, and in and, and, and other games too. So just imagine in terms of just the fan base, fans in the United States being able to go to games, but also the television coverage, uh, interviews. Uh, And what they have planned for the US tour and how that is going to be different than perhaps some of the Premier League teams or La Liga teams or or teams teams from uh, Liga Mekis that are doing their own tours this summer. This is going to be really, really fascinating to watch. And and like you said, Kartik, I think it's going to blow up uh, big time in, in, in a really great way.
1: I have to say, I think there's more interest in Wrexham than there is in most Premier League teams in the U.S. right now. Maybe that seems like an exaggeration. Maybe I'm in a bit of a bubble, again, a lower league bubble. So, lower league U.S. fans are really into Wrexham. They they not that into the Premier League, um, but I, it just feels that way to me.
0: Yeah, I think Arsenal is the exception. I think Arsenal is just definitely. I mean, I mean despite recent results, I mean, there's, there's a buzz about Arsenal. And I think a lot of it, too, is also kind of uh, Arsenal fans that have been here for generations that have suffered through some tough times, uh, just have as Manchester United fans maybe suffered in the, the late 70s and early 80s before before they came good. Um, but yeah, I look at the top 10 stories from the past uh, few months, um, even on our website, we've got you know, hundreds of stories about Arsenal, hundreds of stories about uh, you I mean Napoli hundreds of stories about you you name it out of that top ten, many of those most popular stories are Wrexham stories, and so it's going to an audience i mean you I mean it, it is in the mainstream of America there's a lot more people probably talking about Wrexham than they are talking about maybe i don't know Leicester City, even though leicester city uh you I mean this Leicester City on its own is is a good story, but I mean, Wrexham, I'm sure, has more uh, interest right now than Leicester City as just one example. All right, let's move on to Listener Mailbag. Uh, first up to talk about CBS Sports' UEFA coverage is Brendan. Brendan says, I never watch it. I watch BT Sport from the UK, it is excellent. Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Michael Owen, Owen Hargreaves, Peter Crouch, brilliant analysts. My take on this car take is I, I I don't I don't rate Michael Owen at all. I think uh, a lot of I don't know stereotypes or just just really poor analysis. Rio Ferdinand I don't think is that good either. Joe Cole, you know better than I do, so I'm not sure about Joe Cole. Owen Hargreaves is really good and then Peter Crouch is uh, almost a stand-up comedian kind of uh side of the the analysis um what about you what about uh, Joe Cole as a analyst have you had much experience kind of listening into him
1: yeah and i've actually watched some interviews he's done um he's he's got potential he's not nearly at a character Neville level yet but of the uh, uh of that Group Of that BT sport group, I think he's probably the uh, one with the most potential of the former players. Hargreaves, to me, very kind of drying and boring. He makes some decent points. And obviously, uh, he has experience having played in Germany as well. So he can talk about Bayern, who are uh, really kind of uh, really FC Hollywood again now um, with what's going on at that club. But um, yeah, I, I don't really like the BT coverage either, to be honest with you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here. Uh, Jonathan says, you guys are really going to die on the hill that CBS's coverage of the Champions League isn't the best coverage in the US right now? They may joke a lot, but Thierry Henry laughing gives more tactical insight than five minutes with Tim Howard on NBC. I I disagree with this. Uh, Tim Howard, maybe from two years ago, I would say yes, but Tim Howard from now. Uh, is a lot more insightful, is really kind of getting more into the player psyche and sharing some of those things uh, and some of the analysis uh, that is far better than what he was doing before. Thierry Henry is good, definitely. But sometimes there's definitely a little bit of a language barrier. Sometimes he's kind of like it's hard to pick up what he's saying. Um, and when he slows it down a bit you can kind of understand it a little bit more for the most part I understand everything he says but now and again you know, I mean it just uh, doesn't it doesn't come out right or doesn't You I mean you just have to kind of uh, I mean in between Jamie and, and his Scouse accent and then Micah kind of laughing and, and it, it it's a little bit chaotic at times to be able to hear their tactical insight but Kartik what's your thoughts on who has the best coverage of soccer in the US right now what do you think?
1: Oh well that's that's a great question. I mean I think overall it's probably CBS because they they tailor make their um their product uh, in each area to the audience, right? We've talked about this. They cover each, of, each, each league or competition, they cover differently. Uh, unlike ESPN, who has a kind of a, a one-size-fits-all formula, and uh, NBC that only covers one thing. But um, I, I, I think in terms of that Champions League studio, Kate Abdo is very good. I, th- I do agree on Thierry Henry. I think he's very good, although I disagree that Tim Howard doesn't give tactical analysis. I think he probably gives more tactical analysis than anyone at NBC other than Danny Higginbottom. Um, but um, I I think the rest of the team is kind of laughy, laffy, jokey, jokey. To be honest with you, I don't get as much out of Carragher on CBS as I do on Sky. On Sky, yeah, he's yeah. pushed by Neville. Gary Neville is really good. Um, Carragher, uh, if... if In his comfort zone, there's not much real analysis there. He gets pushed by Neville. Neville challenges him a lot on set. If if you ever watch some of uh, Sky's studio coverage, uh, it's not just the host that pushes uh, Carragher. It's Neville. And that brings the best out of him. But he doesn't get pushed like that on CBS.
0: Yeah. And the question, it, it depends how you kind of perceive the question about who has the best soccer coverage in the U.S. right now. You said CBS more so for kind of how it's covering a lot of the different leagues and competitions and, and uh, U.S. soccer. But but for me, if I take it from kind of just in terms of analysis, presentation of whatever soccer league or competition or various ones that they are doing, I, I still think NBC Sports is still at the top in terms of what they're providing with, with Rebecca. And Danny Higginbotham and Stephen Warnock at times and Tim Howard and, and the two Robbies, um, even though it is only only one league. And but in terms of what they're doing still, I think it's still uh, the gold standard. Next up is Dave. Dave says, I enjoy that CBS and, and, and NBC take different approaches to covering soccer, just as it is fun that uh, Tudo n and Telemundo differ. I think we are lucky that so many broadcasters are putting a big push uh, for soccer. Uh, Not everything is a home run, but they all hit hit much more than they miss. Yeah, and that I agree with 100%. Chris says, when it comes to the studio coverage from CBS of the Champions League, I find it to be too jokey at times. However, having said that, if CBS decided to cover the Champions League in the same way they cover the NFL or the PGA Tour, they would be labeled as too serious and might be accused of talking down to the average American soccer fan. This is something that many college football fans find issue with when it comes to CBS's coverage of that sport. And I can see why CBS is trying to avoid that with the Champions League. Um, I have a question, Chris says, about uh, Warner Brothers Discovery's upcoming coverage of the U.S. Open Cup. My question to you, Kartik, is do you see TNT or TBS airing some of the matches, including the U.S. Open Cup final?
1: Yeah, I think maybe the final will be on TNT or TBS. Uh, And if they get some sort of Cinderella story, although... um I, I don't know maybe they're not as invested in, in, in what goes on in the domestic game domestic professional game to know when those Cinderella stories are there because again I, I point to Fox 10 years ago or I guess now it would have been, been 2012 right so 11 years ago with Eric Winalda and Cal FC um, now obviously Winalda and Nick Webster both worked for Fox but there was also the recognition that okay this is something that lower division fans in the U.S. are kind of interested in an amateur team coached by a very famous uh, uh, figure in American soccer and Eric Winalda making a run let's pick this game up and show it nationally I don't know if Turner quite has that recognition let's say um, let's say uh, Tormento wins this match against Charlotte tonight uh, again, we're recording this on Tuesday. Let's say they win this match, which is on CBS, as we mentioned. Uh, does Turner have the foresight to pick up Tormenta's next match and realize, okay, this is a Cinderella story. This is a club from Statesboro, Georgia that is, uh, as I said earlier, I think one of the best built-out uh, lower division professional uh, outfits in, in the country. Uh, and in a place like Statesboro, which is a small college town, right? That's where Georgia Southern is. That's kind of their basis, the fact that there's, it's a college town. Uh, do they have the foresight to pick up that match against an ML? last team in the next round i'm guessing they probably don't whereas fox for all the criticisms we have of fox they, they they understood kind of the domestic game and they understood that was a big story
0: one question i have Kartik, uh as a tangent is do you think cbs sports golasso network would be as interested in the u.s open cup as they are now uh if the wrexham story didn't happen
1: no, I think the Wrexham story, I, I said, like I said a little earlier, is driving a lot. Again, I'm kind of in a lower division, uh, USL-NISA bubble to a certain extent, uh, That's why I made the comment, and maybe it sounds outrageous to a lot of fans, that I think Wrexham is bigger than the Premier League clubs right now. But I do think it's driving so much of the conversation in this country, especially at the lower division level. And as I said, CBS local CBS stations have established relationships with local USL clubs to where uh, I think the momentum from Wrexham is is fueling a lot of this. And um, uh, again, I I think uh, uh, everyone is picking up on it. So uh, CBS this morning... Uh, you know, their morning program, uh, did do a thing on Wrexham getting promoted. Uh, because again, Ryan Reynolds, Rob McElhaney, they're, they're pop celebrities. So it's, it's, uh, I think every media company in the United States, every newsroom in the United States is aware of Wrexham, uh, even if it's a, if it's a quote Disney property and it's something that Disney has been pushing, every other media company is aware of the impact of Wrexham. You know, I'd be really disappointed if NBC with their coverage of the Premier League and their ties to English football don't do something to mention Wrexham in the coming week honestly, because it's that big a story.
0: Yeah, for the most part, I think for the most part, they've avoided it, really. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure they've mentioned it on maybe one of the podcasts. I, I just can't think of anything that they've done that was uh, <laughs> brought it up. Maybe this weekend, maybe they're, they're listening and they'll do something this weekend. Uh, last question from Listener Mailbag before we go is um, uh, Dave uh, continues. He has uh, some thoughts about the World Cup 2026 that we were talking about. Uh, and he says, what is the reason to believe that 2026 World Cup will drive sustained, increased interest in U.S. domestic leagues? My guess is it might be like the Olympics, where many fans get very engaged for a few weeks and then forget about it for a few years. And Dave and others, I'm not sure how many of you went through the 1994 World Cup or are alive during the 1994 World Cup or experienced the 1994 World Cup. Uh, but for me personally, being in the, the United States um it changed everything right for me it was like months prior to the world cup happening there was so much coverage uh both in the media um, newspapers television etc and it just snowballed and by the time we got to the 1994 world cup um it it was everywhere everyone was talking about it uh unfortunately the oj simpson (laughs) uh, car chase kind of ruined some of it took took away some of the uh, uh coverage of that but um It was transformative. And I think the 2026 World Cup, with the the popularity of soccer being more entrenched in the United States, is just going to be next level. So, But the question that Dave's asking, will it have sustained increased interest in U.S. domestic leagues? Major League Soccer, Mm -hmm. I think think so. Uh, What about the lower leagues, Kartik?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think, I think he's right for three or four weeks after it will. I, I, my, my experience is, I I was around for 94, but my, my memories are more of 99 and the Women's World Cup uh, and winning the Women's World Cup. Obviously, penalty shootout against China uh, at Stanford Stadium. What that did for the game in the country, in this country, uh, that was just five years later, but because we already had the established professional uh, structure that we didn't have in 94. And granted, that came out of 94, right? MLS and then, uh, The A-League, which is now USL or USISL, became stronger as a result of 94. I remember the women's game actually giving a boost to the men's game. Um, and and how significant that was. Even you and I were both Miami Fusion fans. How uh, I think there was more media interest in the Fusion for the rest of that 99 season, by the way, speaking of Eric Rinaldo, he was playing for for, for the team at the time, um, than uh, then you would have had otherwise. Uh, my other memories of 2016 Copa America, that definitely helped uh, lower division soccer. I mean, in NASL, we felt a boost based on on the Copa being, in uh in the country now unfortunately there were some internal disputes and some of the teams left and went to usl and i mean that's the whole soccer wars thing but it definitely did give a boost uh to lower division soccer um in terms of MLS, did MLS really benefit from that Copa in 2016? Uh, I guess, yeah. I think I think it, it kind of did. Uh, but it de- definitely gave a boost to lower division soccer. Um, the the thing I do want to point out again, though, which I pointed out on a previous podcast, is the potential gains of that Copa America were, were squandered because it put a lot of money into the uh, treasury of U.S. soccer, and much of that money was then spent on lawyers' fees because of – Everything else going on Yeah And that could That that very well could happen In 2026 also I mean the way U.S. soccer is going I I think it's a It's a strong possibility That they will bank A lot of money And the money will go Out the window To pay lawyers Because there's some uh, Abuse or something Going on Um uh the, the uh the federation has to clean itself up in the next 3 years to really be able to take advantage of that world cup
0: yeah yeah and then those legal fees up to this point are in the tens of millions of dollars and those a lot of those uh, lawsuits are still outstanding Uh, going through the court system. So, yeah, you're right, Kartik. there could be many, many more millions to come in terms of legal fees. Um, And hopefully they they clean up their act there too. All right, lastly, uh, listeners, if you do want to have any, uh, uh, you want to share your feedback with us, any questions, thoughts, uh, analysis, observations, or you you agree or disagree with us, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, There's a bunch of different ways you can get in touch with us. You can send us an email, which is web at WorldSoccerTalk.com. You can go to the website, WorldSoccerTalk.com, click on podcasts, and then leave your comment in the latest episode. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter, at WorldSoccerTalk. There's Facebook.com slash WorldSoccerTalk. You can send us a message through there. And then last but not least, if you want to leave a voicemail, uh, it's 561-247-4625. And Karthik, uh, where can people find you and your writings and, and coverage?
1: Yeah, check us, uh, check me out on Twitter at KKFLA737, and then BeyondThe90.substack.net, which, by the way, this morning is heavy on the CBS Golazo U.S. Open Cup thing. So uh, maybe we covered that so thoroughly on this podcast, you don't want to check out that website for a day or two. But there, uh, there'll be other content on there. We have a great article on on uh, what's ailing Spurs, uh, and then I did an article on Swansea actually the other day. But um, the Tottenham article is really interesting by my colleague Javi Martinez, so you might want to check that out.
0: All right. Well- We will be back later this week But in the meantime There's a lot of soccer From around the world US Open Cup There is the Arsenal Manchester Manchester City On Wednesday In the title clash There is uh, CONCACAF Champions League uh, And much much more Kartik what are you going to be Doing this week And what should the listeners do Enjoy your football